Peter chapter 2. Thank you, John, for coming and sharing with us today. Fabulous. I mean, it's just stunning, really. Sunday morning, we're studying 2 Peter together. And if you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention, and they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that a gift from the Lord to you today. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Peter writes by the Holy Spirit, and especially those speaking of false teachers who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices, and they are accursed children. They've forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of righteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrain the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that every single passage in your word is intended to do something important in each one of our lives. Every passage so important. And we pray, Lord, that you would take this passage and by your Holy Spirit, just open it up to us, Lord. For those of us that are in any danger today related to false teachers, we pray that you would use this passage to give us revelation that we need to turn away from that voice, Lord. And we pray that you would also use this to inoculate us from ever falling prey to false teaching for the rest of our pilgrimage. Just bless us. Thank you for your word. Meet with us through your word. Now we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Chapter 2 of Second Peter contains uh, the apostles' warnings concerning uh, false teachers. And the language that he uses in this chapter is very, very strong language. In fact, some of the strongest uh, language in the entire New Testament. One commentator, uh, well-versed in the Greek, wrote of this, and he wrote, Peter's abhorrence of the errorist produces some of the most colorful and shocking language in the New Testament. And it's really true. And of course, all of this language that Peter uses here in the descriptive way that he speaks, all of it's more than appropriate uh, in the life of the great apostle. It is one thing for a person to be incompetent as a plumber, uh, as a car mechanic, as a financial advisor, When people are incompetent in those areas, they can cost us a lot of money. They can become very, very frustrating to us. But at the very worst, the consequences related to their incompetence are only temporal. They only reach as far as the natural realm. When you have a false teacher, and a false teacher is the most dangerous person alive, because their error 
can affect a person's understanding of God in this life, and even more importantly, they uh, have the potential of adversely affecting a person's entire eternity, their eternal destination. And it's important to realize, I think, as we look at this, and before we get into the kind of the gory details of all of this, to realize that Peter, when he writes this, I'm convinced that, of course, the Holy Spirit inspires him to write this. He needs to do it. He's happy to do it. But the average pastor, the average leader, or the average apostle here, Peter, they would rather do just about anything than address this particular subject. But it's very, very necessary that this subject be addressed. And so Peter is not the kind of person who has, by nature, a critical spirit, sees everything that is wrong with every other Christian or picks out every kind of small flaw in, that can be found in any church and then proceeds to bash these people. That's not his motivation at all. And his heart is a lot bigger than that, uh, of course. And so he, he's, that's, uh, he's not indiscriminate in terms of how he speaks these these things. His letter so far in chapter 1 has included a lot of valuable instruction concerning the Lord himself, our relationship with the Lord and all. And so he's, it's not just a letter that he's writing to get to these, these false teachers or doing so needlessly. He speaks this because it's absolutely necessary for our safety. I think at this point it's also good to re- be reminded of the fact that the type of false teacher that Peter was warning against were those that were teaching heresy. And again, as we've seen earlier, we're not talking about uh, doctrines that good, honest, sincere Christians have differences of opinion related to, but they are not uh, critical doctrines as it relates to salvation or that reflect uh, poorly upon the Lord or something like that. They're not essentials of the Christian faith. He's addressing errors that are so serious that if they were adopted by all Christians, then Christianity would cease to be Christianity. It would become something entirely different than God intended it to be and that Jesus died on the cross in order for it to be and to make it in human history. Now, the point that Peter makes in all of these verses is there's a, that there is a lot more wrong with false teachers of this kind than their false teachings, that, they, they, that these people have something very seriously wrong with them inside. We tend to think when we hear a false teacher or a heretic, we tend to think that the sole area of wrong in their life is their false teaching. We say, well, there's a, they are a false teacher, and the worst thing about their life is the fact that they're a false teacher. But the biggest thing that's wrong with them is not just that they teach false doctrine. That's the, only the tip of the iceberg. But Peter takes, and now he begins to speak to us of, about their motives of their heart, the depravity in many cases of their mind, uh, the debased character that is behind the false doctrine. And the point that he's making and the take-home point for all of us today in terms of having this passage inoculate us against ever falling prey to false teachers or false teaching for the rest of our lives, the point he's making is that there is something very wrong with a person who deliberately teaches false doctrine. So that when a person, uh, because of the fact that it is just as easy to and easier to teach healthy doctrine. And so when a person refuses to teach healthy doctrine, but instead deliberately teaches there, this reveals again that there's something deeply wrong with the person, they're seriously flawed and even uh, depraved. A God-called teacher who's faithful to their calling will just be simply content to read the Word of God, explain it, and then apply it to our lives. And they'll do it out of two great motives in their lives, their love for God and their love for people. 
The false teacher isn't operating out of those kind of motives, but they operate out of a different motive, which Peter now begins to reveal to us, the characteristics and the motives of false teachers. You notice in verse 10 he says, they walk in the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And Peter is speaking here of sexual immorality. And so the apostles and the other faithful teachers of that day, they taught the importance of sexual purity and holiness in order to live a life that is obedient to God's word in order for us to properly represent Christ in the world. I certainly can't represent Christ in the world through a sexually immoral life, and I can't represent Christianity in the world through a sexually immoral life. But these false teachers, they neither taught nor lived a sexually pure life, but they were sexually immoral. And so their doctrine is uh, anything goes. And that's what they teach And that's what, even though they claim to be teaching for Christ, and that is the life that they also live. You just do whatever your body tells you to do. After all, God made these physical appetites, didn't he? These sexual appetites. And so it must mean that all we're doing is we're expressing an urge and a desire that God has given to us. And so what in the world can be wrong with that? And, of course, you hear an awful lot of that today in an attempt to legitimize sexual immorality even among uh, Christians. And what they do, though, is they ignore the fact that our appetites, our physical appetites, including our sexual appetite, is not as God originally created it. There's a fall in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve between the moment that man was created in the image of God and what we are today. So to take and to say every urge that we have comes from God and is a part of his creation in our life is to completely ignore the most earth-shaking event in the Bible next to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is the fall of man. Our appetites are not sanctified the way they were in the garden, and they are not safe, and they do not in and of themselves glorify God. They have been tainted by that fall, and they have been tainted by sin. I ask myself, why in the world would a teacher refuse to teach sexual purity as the Bible teaches it, and then instead replace it with a message that none of this is important, that sexual purity isn't important to God. Why would they teach that except to protect their own sexually impure life and to protect themselves from conviction and also from the need for repentance? So it's not just that they're teaching false doctrine. They're teaching it out of a darkness of their own life that God sees and understands, and he wants us to be aware of that. There's something wrong with a teacher who teaches, who refuses, rather, to teach the importance of living a holy life sexually, refuses to live that life himself. That goes... that that. Uh, something wrong goes way beyond their teaching. It reveals a darkness of their heart. Peter also wants us to know in verse 10, number two, they despise authority. That is that they are rebellious and they are proud. Why in the world would anyone fail to teach God's word as he has given it, except that they uh, either they think that they know more than God and thus they're proud Or two, they are rebellious. They're so rebellious against any and all authority that they're even rebellious against uh, God's authority. They refuse to submit to it. And so Peter warns us that false teachers are those that have a real problem in their core with submission to authority. So they despise all authority but their own. When I won't submit myself to God's authority and his voice and and what he has taught, then, I mean, that's just the ultimate expression of rebellion and pride that a person can have in the whole wide world and be in in a person's life. And so they're so rebellious that 
they won't even listen to God. They won't even uh, submit themselves to his authority. And since they won't submit to God, they won't submit to anyone else. So they establish some kind of doctrine or church or religious system that they can be at the top of. Now, very often with this kind of false teacher and how sometimes these false uh, Christian cults start, uh, very often this kind of person who will not submit to authority, uh, you find that they don't have any accountability in their lives. They don't like accountability. They refuse uh, to submit themselves to any kind of higher authority. I, uh, it's amazing to me in Acts chapter 13 when uh, the great apostle Paul was being uh, going out for his missionary journeys to begin them. He didn't just say, hey, uh, I think I want to have some missionary journeys and go out and uh, do my own thing. He submitted to the leadership. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. He submitted to the elders of the church at Antioch. And he went out only because they sent him out with Barnabas initially on these missionary journeys. He was a man for all of his gifting and the calling of God upon his life and all of these great things that God had entrusted to him. He was a man who not only was willing to submit to God's authority, but he was eager to have that kind of accountability in his life. And so it says a lot about the Apostle Paul uh, that is good, and it says a lot that is bad about a person who will not allow themselves to be accountable, but they despise authority. The, I personally would be very wary of putting myself under the pastoral care, the uh, influence of any teacher or minister that did not have some kind of meaningful accountability in their life or they showed an open disdain for authority. Submission to godly authority, not all authority, but godly authority is taught from one end of the Bible to the other. I'll give you an example. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. That likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And the older I get, the more I love that verse. But it doesn't just stop there. It goes on to say, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. I'll tell you, that takes something, and Peter recognized it, so he went on further and said, And be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I think about submission, even in the life of Jesus, as he submitted himself to the Father's will. Father, if there's any way, he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, for this cup to pass from me, he says, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Notice also in verse 10 that they're presumptuous, and this means bold in a bad sense. In other words, they're reckless with the things of God, and they're reckless with the lives of men. And I'll tell you, the things of God and the lives of men are nothing to be reckless with. The Word of God is eternal. The souls of men are eternal. It's the only thing that's eternal in this world that are going to head into the new heavens and the new earth, and that is the souls of men and women and children and the Word of God which never passes away. Uh, and, and these men are reckless with both of those things. And they come across, Peter tells us, as very, very sure of themselves, uh, even very, very cocky. And why in the world would these false teachers feel it necessary to come across with this kind of bad boldness or this kind of, of cockiness? The reason is, is because when you're teaching false doctrine and you want to lead people into believing false doctrine, you cannot gain their confidence on the basis of the Scriptures. You can't take them to the Bible and say, here is where it says in the Bible, here and here and here and here, and see how it's reflected throughout the Bible. And, and so you try to get them to be confident in the false thing that they're teaching, 
uh, based upon their own bold sureness concerning what it is that they're teaching. And it's kind of the power of personality. There's an old joke that goes around related to uh, preachers, and you don't like to uh, give out secrets, but this is a, a particular secret of mine. But there's the old story of, of a, a preacher who was preparing his sermon and uh, as he, he was writing in the margin different things and as he came to one point of his sermon, uh, he wrote there, yellow little, uh, he wrote weak point, yell a little louder. And uh, I don't know any pastor that does that, by the way, that uh, deals with their notes that way. But it is, it is the kind of thing that a false teacher will do. And so often you can take something that is very, very flimsy doctrinally and the false teacher knows that if they say it loud enough and bold enough and with just enough assurance that there is a large group of people who will believe it for that reason alone. And we see a, a great shift in the last a couple of decades in the United States of America, really the Western world, where people come to embrace truth or accept something as truth less and less on an intellectual basis, on the rigors of saying this person has presented this is truth, I'm going to examine it exhaustively, intellectually, before I give it a place in my life. And if it doesn't match the rigors of uh, of, you know, logic and these kind of things, then I, then I will reject it. And today, more and more, and the younger generation is more subject to this by virtue of the world that they're living in than those of us who are a little bit older or just different by personality. But today, increasingly, people accept something as true on the basis of how it impacts them, how they feel emotionally when they hear it. Uh, Oprah is a great testimony to that, and she's not alone. Many, many teachers, and these people are all teachers, by the way, but they, they know how to engage people emotionally, and increasingly people, even in religious environments or church environments or Christian environments, they're coming to the conclusion of whether something is true or false on the basis of emotion rather than on the, on the basis of examining it intellectually or examining it in terms of the rigors of, of exam, examination of the mind. And so people believe uh, on the basis of what they feel more now than ever than on the basis of what they think. We also notice in verse 10 that they're self-willed. And so they're not only arrogant, but they're very, very... Uh, selfish. They're only interested in their own thing. That word self-willed there, it's translated, it liter in the Greek it literally means self-to-please or self-pleasing. And so it was used in the ancient world to describe a man who had uh, no idea of anything other than pleasing himself. So in other words, it gets into the motive again. This person is not in it out of a love for God. This person is not in it out of a love for people. He is in it out of a, some kind of a self-focused uh, motive. And so he doesn't have any other motive than just pleasing himself. And so, uh, and, and very often you can find that people get, and God help all of us to search our hearts related to this. The Holy Spirit will certainly do that. But very often a false teacher has this deep, deep emotional need to be needed. And so he gets into these things, he gets into these false doctrines, he gets into all of that. He wants the authority over people uh, because he has a need to be needed and a need to be the center of attention. And so there's a very real sense in which they are emotionally unstable and they're mentally unstable and as, as God would look at them. And then in verses 10 and 11, we're told that they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. In other words, there's no authority in heaven or on earth that they won't slander or they won't attack or they won't tear down if those people disagree with their teaching. So for them, their false teaching and their reputation 
has to be protected uh, at all costs, even at the, the cost of tearing down legitimate ministries, everybody else's uh, reputation, and to even do so contrary to the facts. When you hold on to false teaching, you're always threatened by truth. <laughs> facts, are, facts are stubborn things. And the Bible truth is a stubborn thing. And, and so the false teacher is always threatened by biblical truth and always threatened by those who teach, accurately teach, uh, biblical truth. They rightly divide the word of truth. And so uh, when you uh, hold on to that false teaching, then you're always threatened by people that are faithful to the word of God. And since you can't defend false doctrine from the Bible, you learn how to attack uh, other people in different ways to draw attention away from the fact that this doctrine isn't in the Bible and you learn how to slander and to tell lies about other people personally. And so the point is this, that everyone who must be slandered in order to defend a false doctrine will be. And I think it's fascinating the day in which we live. This has happened in just the year since I've uh, become a Christian, sort of walking with the Lord back in 1980, but this continues to increase more and more. And you have, for instance, liberal denominations where there's a move away from the authority of the Scripture for life and for doctrine, how we are to live and what we are to believe. And so often in those particular denominations, and it's not just exclusive to them, it's far broader problem than that, but they see these things that they don't like from the Bible or they think are kind of crimping their style or they disagree with and all. So they begin to move away from teaching those things and then who do they make the bad guys? They make the bad guys of those that do teach the word of God. And so uh, we end up being called the fundamentalists, which is a, actually a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful term to have ascribed to us. But in the culture, it is, uh, 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 it's spoken of condescendingly by the false teachers that we're the bad guys, we're the stick in the mud, we're the people that aren't progressive, we're the people that aren't moving with the times. And so they become the good guys, we become the bad guys. And again, it's the same characteristic that everyone else's reputation can be destroyed in order for them to protect their own. And Peter tells us here that this kind of thing is something that even angels who are greater in power and in might than men, they don't do before the Lord. In other words, the tone of heaven isn't one of conflict. It is a, you know, we're not going to go up into heaven and, and there's, uh, going to be, there aren't going to be debates up there. There aren't going to be screaming matches up there. It's going to be a very peaceful place. And so the tone of heaven isn't conflict. It isn't condemnation. And, uh, and Peter is telling us that shouldn't be the tone of our ministries either. If you have to fight with people all of the time uh, and fight with everyone all of the time, the chances are pretty good that you're probably wrong and the problem probably lies with you and not with them. But that isn't something that the false teachers are willing to face. Notice in verse 12 that they uh, speak evil of things they do not understand. There's a lot they don't understand. And this this accusation or this reflection of their motives and their character where they speak evil of the things they don't understand, nowhere is that more true than when they criticize the Bible and the clear teaching of the Word of God. Sometimes you listen to false teachers and you, and you just think, you know, why don't you just go out and get your own gig? Why even bother messing around trying to rep yourself, represent yourself associated with God or associated with Christianity or associated with the Bible and then and you just think to yourself how can they say these things that they say and uh, why would they teach this error when the life that comes with obeying the Bible is so fabulous and so much better and the fact of the matter is it's because they haven't been born again and they haven't experienced the life that Christ gives 
Can you imagine teaching the Bible without being born again? What are you going to say? What are you going to say with any conviction? What are you going to say from any depth of experience? Of course you're not going to teach on sexual purity because you don't know anything about it. But you take someone who's come from a very sexually immoral life and they come to know Christ and the Holy Spirit comes into their life, makes them into a new creation, and now they're living a life that is pure in that particular area. I'll tell you, none of them smack their lips related to their own life and say, oh, I wish I could go back and do that again. They're thankful for the life that God has led them into. I've talked a couple of times with men who ultimately were born again, but they were pastoring churches and teaching the Bible and not born again. And then you talk to them now. They're born again. They have a gift. God is blessing them. You talk to them now. You say, was, was there any difference for you? Oh, my. Yes, there was a difference between having the Holy Spirit in you, knowing the beauty of the life that is described experientially, in the Bible, and then now you want everyone to know that, you want everyone to experience that. But if you've never been born again and, uh, and, and haven't entered into even two steps into the beauty of the life, then, uh, then of course, you, you know, you're, of course they're going to teach the nonsense that they do teach. The Bible says, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he says, but the natural man, the man that's not saved yet, hasn't put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and have the Holy Spirit come into our lives. The greatest miracle that can happen in a human life just has been shared with us this morning. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. No one who is truly born again and filled with the Holy Spirit will teach error because they know that the life that they are living by simply obeying the Word of God cannot be improved upon in any way. Notice 7th in verse 12. There's only 60. He says that like natural brute beasts, they are made to be caught and destroyed. They will utterly perish in their own corruption. In other words, Peter says, despite their pride, the fact of the matter is, in terms of concerning spiritual things, they are about no smarter than cattle in a field. And they are going to ultimately be headed to destruction in the same way that cows are ultimately led to slaughter. That's horrifying to some of you. And uh, you don't look at a cow as a future hamburger. You look at a cow as a friend. But in the ancient world, they were raised for food. And so that's what Peter's talking about, not for pets. So uh, a Peter's saying that a cow even is better off than these false prophets and teachers because they are not eternal beings. Their destruction is but for a moment, and the destruction of these false teachers is going to go on forever and ever. And it's very, very sobering, and Peter knows that it's sobering, but we really need to hear it. They've done a lot of harm, God says, and without repentance, they will uh, be repaid harm for the harm that they've done. Then notice in verse 13 that they uh, counted a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. And the idea here is they have no shame concerning sin. They don't even try to hide it. And it's talking about drunken parties where sexual immorality would go on and all. And even in that Roman culture that Peter was writing, and it was a very decadent culture, it was a very sexually immoral culture. And yet, even among those that didn't know Christ, just the cultural norm was, you don't do that stuff during the day. You reserve that stuff for darkness. And yet, here are these false teachers 
uh, they, they take and they get so engulfed in their sin that they're even willing to engage in, in this kind of sin, not only in the nighttime, but in the day. So they essentially, they become a victim of their own false teaching. I think it's important to realize that every commandment in God's Word is for our good. It protects us from something that is dangerous to our lives. God doesn't, doesn't say, thou shalt not or thou shalt, uh, just to see if he can say the words. Every commandment is given under a motivation of love. It protects us from something or it leads us into something that's fabulous related to God. And, and so the, the, the false teaching, when you take any of those commandments and you uh, live in violation of that, you are living contrary not only to God, but you're living contrary to creation. You talk about a, a fish having to swim upstream every day, life, morally, mentally, emotionally. You wonder why, I mean, I read these statistics every so often. I saw it just a couple of weeks ago, but I, everything I read I forget within an hour, so it's a problem for me. But the Bible is always fresh and new to me. Every time I teach it, it's like a truth that I've never heard before. So that's a problem for you, but I'm having the time of my life. But the... the uh, the number of people that are on medication. Uh, because the mind is all screwed up. The heart is all screwed up. And here, here you have a world that is trying, is just running into the wall of the way that God has made us and thinking we can't become a casualty, but we're becoming casualties by the millions, by the hundreds of millions, by the, around the world. And, and so you, ultimately these people, they become a victim of their own teaching. It ends up destroying uh, them. And so they take themselves with their false doctrine. All it does is it takes them into deeper and deeper bondage. They get bolder and bolder in their sin until ultimately they self-destruct. And when Peter says in verse 13 that their spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, it means that they're living these openly sinful lives. And uh, then they came to the love feast at the church uh, in the ancient world prior to partaking of the Lord's Supper. They would have like a communal meal. They would have what we would call a potluck today. And so they would come to the services. They would then fellowship and mingle. I don't know if they would stay for the service. <laughs> it's just because their motives were something very, very different. And so they would come to those love feasts, come to the church service, and, uh, and live just like there's nothing wrong with a life that they are living. And Peter says that, it's, uh, that they're like spots and blemishes. I mean, I don't know about you, but... Uh, most of us are self-conscious enough that if we spill, a, get a big stain on our shirt, that shirt is ruined except for gardening. And, and so by them coming in with their soiled lives into among God's people and living the life that they were living, they were spoiling that church. They were spoiling the meetings. And I'm not talking about somebody that doesn't know the Lord yet that is, is all messed up the way that we are before we come to know the Lord. There's nothing wrong with sinners coming to church to discover Christ and have God change our lives. This is a different breed of cat or a different breed of person here. And so this is, this is what they're doing, and they're spoiling it with their presence uh, in the same way that a stain ruins a shirt or it ruin, ruins a blouse. They're deliberately living the very life that Jesus died on the cross to free us from. No Christian should ever go to church and end up being defiled by someone who claims to be a Christian, and that's what these false teachers were doing. Their very presence was defiling 
uh, people because their very presence tempts people to follow them into their lifestyle and uh, we don't even uh, we don't need that kind of temptation or that kind of encouragement. We say, why why, do they, why would they even bother go to church? Why not just eat, drink, and be merry? Go out and just you know do your thing. Why why the con- why the need to be connected with the church or to, uh, around God's people? Because they want to have they want to satisfy and f- and fulfill and follow all of the sinful desires of their life, but they still want a religious or a spiritual side to their life as as well. You notice in verse 14 he tells us that their eyes are full of adultery. In other words, they're addicted to sin and they entice unstable souls. Imagine here, some of you are already done with me on this. Listen, I've I feel a little defiled myself having to talk about this. You think about how poor Peter has to sit down and he has to write this. And, and, he, and he does it because he needed to by the Spirit of God. But it wasn't a, a pleasant thing. He's just doing it for our protection. So he talks about them having eyes full of adultery. It literally means having eyes full of an adulteress. And so, that is, their own, they think only of adultery when they see women and they're constantly looking for women with whom they might have an adulterous affair. And so they never stop sinning. It literally means they're unceasing in sin, probably referring to uh, the sexual sin with their eyes. And then as if it couldn't get any worse, uh, they deliberately target unstable souls in the church, new Christians or Christians in Churches where they haven't yet been grounded in the Word of God, or uh, even worse yet, finding within a church someone who has come out of a, a, a sexually immoral background, struggles with the sin, and they're looking for that kind of a person who is vulnerable, and they're even hunting them down and bringing temptation to them right there, targeting them right there in the church. And it's terrible to think about, but it needs to be spoken about because it's true. And it goes on, I don't know how often, but it goes on regularly enough, even to this day, where people use their positions, false teachers use their positions to, and, and position of authority to satisfy their own sexual appetites. And then he tells us, in verses 14 through 16, that they're covetous. In other words, they're in it for the money. And Peter says that they have a heart that's trained. In other words, they're experts in covetous practice. They love money, and they're experts on how to separate people from their money. Not to advance the work of the Lord, as we've heard this morning, and is true of of you know, solid churches, and solid churches are the majority, of course. But here for them, they know, they really know all of the schemes. They know people psychologically. They know them emotionally. They know what works, what doesn't work. They know what heartstrings to pull. They know how to get money out of people's pockets and into their own pockets. And they're very, very skilled at it, give the appearance of being all about God but they're really in it for the money. And Peter says they're accursed children. They're going to experience the full curse of God's judgment one day in all of its awesome force. Now, and they come, he tells us, from a long line of prophets who love money more than people uh, or even God. And, and these people go all the way back to a prophet by the name of Balaam back in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. Balaam had a legitimate uh, calling of God, a legitimate gift from God. But he was a man uh, who allowed himself to be corrupted by covetousness, the love of money, and uh, his name is really a terrible name in the history of the Bible as a result. He says in verse 17, essentially, that they disappoint and they frustrate. They are wells without water. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been... uh, My favorite movie of all time is Lawrence of Arabia, uh, simply because of the fact that it is an accurate, literal representation of T.E. Lawrence's 
uh, life and that episode. It comes right from the seven pillars of wisdom that he wrote. But they have the scenes, and most of it's played out in the desert, and they have this place where they come to this well, and uh, they're crossing this desert. And when they hit that water in that well, I mean, wow, I mean, you're... Uh, you can be drinking a lemonade while you're watching the movie and be thirsty for them. And, and the idea is you come to this well and, and you want water and then you throw the bucket down or the skin down to get the water and there's no uh, water there. And, and so here is the, speaking physically of the spiritual truth, and that's what these false teachers were like. They look like a teacher. They look like a well. They look like a prophet, but they provided no spiritual refreshment, uh, and, and their false doctrine couldn't quench and doesn't quench the uh, spiritual thirst of man. So they give the appearance that they have something that will quench our spiritual thirst when they have nothing at all. He says they're like clouds carried by a tempest. I remember back in the 1970s when my wife Karen and I were newly married and in that period we had quite a a series of years, I think it was four years of very significant drought. And uh, so every winter we would watch these clouds come by. (laughs) You know, we were living in Napa at the time and we would see them come and are they going to give us any rain? And they didn't. They just went right on over there, bypassed our state. Some of you who our farmers and all, you remember those years very, very well. And so these are what these guys were like. They were like these kind of clouds. They give the hope of refreshment, and then they don't drop any refreshment. They just frustrate. And so just like the farmer's heart sinks when the storm goes by and we didn't even get a drizzle, uh, the person that is looking for spiritual satisfaction, uh, their heart sinks in the same way when they come into contact with uh, this kind of, of a person. And so, yes, they made money. Yes, these false teachers, Peter says, they had a following that adore them. But Peter says that a terrible, terrible, dark judgment awaits them in hell. So that's the perky little message for you today. <laughs> but it's a needed one. And uh, Peter didn't write it for nothing. If you don't take anything else away, there is something wrong with a person who deliberately teaches false doctrine that is way beyond the false doctrine. There is something very wrong in their mind and in their hearts and in their motivations. And that warning was needed for God's people 2,000 years ago, and it's needed even to this day. And I'm glad to plant the seed of that truth in each of our hearts today. If you sit here today and you're not yet a Christian, you have never ever put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You say, what in the world? You could be sitting here just like this Marty Feldman eyes. What church did I come to today to hear all of that and have anything to do with me? Well, maybe not with some of you, but there's a lot of people that come to Christ after their first experience with what was supposed to be Christianity was at the hands of people like this. It takes them a long time to trust people again. It takes them a long time to trust anyone that says that they speak for God again. I can't tell you how many people through the years have come into this church and they sit and they will sit for years. They don't want to know me. They don't want to talk with me. They don't want to know anything more about the church than what they see on Sundays. They do not want to scratch the surface out of fear that if they do that, right underneath the surface is a whole different world from what we actually present ourselves to. And that person can take an awful long time to heal up when their first experience of an attempt to come to know God, a legitimate spiritual thirst, was not met by somebody that was true to the Word of God, but by a false teacher. But God won't let you go. If you find yourself in that place, He keeps holding on and holding on, and He keeps drawing you to Him for this simple reason. And the thing we have to understand is there is always a gigantic differentiation 
between Jesus himself and any of us who claim to represent him and teach for him. Jesus is the only one described in the Bible as the, singular, the faithful and true witness of God. Everybody else falls short, varying degrees. And so you need to make your conclusion concerning Christianity and concerning putting your faith in Jesus as your Savior. You need to make that decision on the basis of Jesus and not on the basis of anyone else or anything else or any other experience. And Jesus will never hurt you. He will never disappoint you. He will never take advantage of you. There are going to be men and women as well as the pastors up in front here immediately after our service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you this morning to enter into a relationship with the true and the living God and enter into the life that he has planned for you, which is the greatest life that a person can live. Take advantage of the opportunity. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation simply because today is the only day you have. You don't have tomorrow. You don't have next week. You don't have next month. You don't have next year. You have today with which to make what is the most important decision that you will make in life because it affects your eternity. But today is all you need to make the right decision. Come forward after the service and say, I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ. I want the Holy Spirit to come into my life, and I want the life that God has for me now as well as everlasting life, and these men and women will help you. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for your word here this morning. We thank you for all of its exhortation, its edification, and its comfort. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this passage this morning just to inoculate us and protect us, Lord, from ever, ever being enticed by false doctrine or wasting our even a moment of our life heading down that path. Thank you, Lord, for the warning. We acknowledge that it's needed. We thank you for it this morning. We pray, Lord, for each one that stands before you now that hasn't yet put their trust in your Son for the forgiveness of their sins, that you would just take and give them a boldness and a strength to not leave this place without doing so, but to come forward now and, and to take, make that commitment and enter into the beauty of what you have planned for them. And we ask these things, we pray these things, in Jesus' name, amen.